0: Welcome to Truthiverse, the number one podcast for free and discerning minds. I'm your host, Brendan Murphy, author and founder of The Truthiversity. As a freedom hacker and truth addict, it's my job to help you reclaim yourself from illusion and live in your power. Living in truth sets you free to holistically upgrade your entire life so you can explore infinite possibility. Join me as we hack our way to a higher evolution. These days, positively charged toxic EMF are everywhere, but your biofield runs on a negative charge just like your body's cells. So how do you protect it? I've been using Organ Effects products like the GeoCleanse and Enerband for years because their technology addresses what others don't—that is, the subtle toxic positive charge field of harmful EMF, neutralizing it. Head to BrendanMurphy.global/EMF to learn more and get yours, and enter Murphy at checkout for 10% off.
1: Brendan, good day. It's good day. Mate. I'm Rob Nayland. <laughs> I am a um, sculptor and a real estate broker. I've lived in um, Breckenridge, Colorado, which is a ski town in the Colorado Rockies for the last 50 or so years, and um, my interest in ancient civilizations uh, really probably came to me uh, from reading Robert Schock's book, Forgotten Civilizations, and uh, that's kind of what started me down this strange pathway that led us to be having this conversation here today. Um, I have done for the last 40 years or so, I've been, um, on and off the captain of the United States snow sculpture team. And, um, what that means is that we have performed, uh, subtractive, uh, sculpture from great big, massive hunks of a dense and brittle material known as packed snow, very much like ice, uh, in competition all over the world. And so for the past 40 years, I have traveled to Finland and Japan and Russia and, and all those kinds of places and won the gold medal on three different continents. And so that's really the skill set that, um, that I brought to the table of this conversation about ancient civilizations and specifically the Great Sphinx. And that's where that really caught my attention. And so... Um, Three cheers and my eternal gratitude to uh, Robert Schock for his seminal work on Forgotten Civilizations, which for me probably provided the very first connecting of the dots between how there could have been a, some sort of a prior cycle of civilization and how that could have been wiped from the face of history, such that we basically had to start over and start that whole climb back up the hill towards what we now call as developed civilization. He provided probably one of the first roadmaps that really made sense to me that did not have to invoke divine intervention or magic or aliens and UFOs and all that kind of stuff that actually invoked natural processes and the geological reality, if you will. And that really captured my attention. So 30 years ago, John Anthony West and Robert Schock proposed that the Great Sphinx is actually far older than what we're told, and that it was hundreds, if not many thousands of years older than what our current narrative is. And they originally said that it used to be a great big giant lion. Okay, well, since 2017, we know that that was not a giant lion. It was actually a lioness figure that was carved in the image of the early dynastic goddess Mahit. And since 2019, we know that this lioness statue was transformed into the Great Sphinx statue when her head and her neck were carved down into the likeness of the king. Everybody knows the great Sphinx. That's probably one of the most iconic images across the world on the planet. No matter what country you live in, you know of the great Sphinx. And so, well, okay, if it's older, how come it looks like an Egyptian? Well, it looks like an Egyptian because the head and the face were recarved during dynastic times. So as a sculptor, I took this idea and said, okay, all right, so if the Great Sphinx was recarved, then it would have had to roll like this. And that's what set me on the case of performing a sculpture of the Great Sphinx in, its, uh, in kind of a two-faced thing. And I'll, and I'll show you a picture of that in just a moment, but showing how what we see as the Sphinx's head today could have been derived from a lioness head that would have existed in antiquity. And so in the context of that, I performed this sculpture. This was prior to my travel in 2019, where we went to Egypt with Robert Schock and Dr. Manning Safesadé and quite a few others and spent three weeks on the Nile touring all the different spots, but also got the chance to get really up close and personal to the Sphinx. I did this sculpture before we actually left to go to Uh, to Egypt. And I'm going to share a photo of that with you right now. So this is the photo of the sculpture that I performed. Okay, and again, uh, not necessarily a perfect exact scale model, although all of the geological layers and the relevant details are presented in here. But I really wanted to be able to see if all of the things that have been presented in history could be derived from a lioness head. And specifically, that means because the sphinx head that we see today is missing a lot of these elements. It is missing the lappets, the breast lapets that come down over the sides, uh, over the shoulders there. Uh, it is missing the nemus tail in the rear, uh, which is part of the um, pharaonic headdress. And of course, it is missing the divine royal beard uh, coming down the front. So I wanted to make sure that all of these things could be, in fact, derived from a lioness head. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, um, let me show you just a, another image here, if I will, of the, um, of the sculpture itself kind of as in situation there. And this would be Mayheat in her sculptural state. And so that's kind of the size of the piece that I did. You can see the nemes tail going down the back and so forth. But the point being that I really wanted to determine is that everything had to be able to fit inside the line of set. And that's where the snow sculptor in me came to bear because historically we would start with a great big super giant block and with hand tools over the course of a three-day competition, we would render a completed sculpture using hand tools only from this great big giant block. And I'll just give you just an example of... Uh, The type of work that we have done over the years. But um, it's quite extraordinary to to be able to see that uh, come out of uh, a great big giant amorphous block of snow. But that's uh, 15 feet tall. Wow. Uh, That piece is called the dance. That was carved from one giant block of snow, which again, snow is obviously not as permanent as stone is. But it is a very dense and brittle material. And so, the notion of being able to get uh, a final image out of an original amorphous block, that's kind of the skill set that I brought to the table of this conversation. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, that being said, when I was doing this sculpture of the Sphinx, um, that's when I came across a rather extraordinary event that I just wanted to share with you, real briefly. Of course, as a sculptor, my hands are my partners, not my appendages, okay? Because as a sculptor, you see with your hands, and that's how you invoke from concept to reality as via these guys right here. As I'm doing this sculpture late at night, and I'm finding a place to put the head, I'd already carved the line body, carving up the head trying to find where, where, where does it go? And, and so my hands sort of directed where the proportional location of the head would have to be in order for it to work. In other words, the, if the neck was too far forward, the headdress would not have fit into it. So all of these things kind of go into the sculptural reality of how do you make it go from the lion head To the to the sphinx head. So I find this spot on the sphinx back where it seems like it's right and where it's correct to go. And so I put that and so I put that down there. And then remarkably, I looked over at, I'll show you this photo, which is kind of a timeless and classic photo. I looked over at one of the photos that had been guiding me in this quest. And this is a late afternoon shot from above of the Sphinx. It was shot in 2015. That's looking directly down on the Great Sphinx. To my shock and disbelief, right after I had placed this model head on the back of the Sphinx, I look over at this photo and I see very, very faintly on the back of the Sphinx, right behind the head, you see this triangular Mm -hmm. remnant. That, at, that fits exactly in the size and location and spot of where I had just put the lion's head on the mm-hmm. back of the Sphinx. I was astounded. I, I, my first thought was, of course, this is common knowledge, that that residual eroded stump is still back there on the back. And of course, I found out, no, it's not. And so then I did a lot more research. And that topic is what I published my first paper on, In 2019, an archaeological discovery journal entitled Mahit's Stump, because I believe and have advocated, I think, um, compellingly, that that is, in fact, the erosional remnant of the lioness neck that was carved away when the Sphinx was carved into its current iteration during dynastic times. So that... um, That was kind of an exciting entree into this field, if you will, is um, actually being able to come up with a original, albeit small, contribution to this conversation about, hey, the Sphinx is older. It's older because it was recarved, And who knows how far back it goes? It could be hundreds of years older. It could be many, many thousands of years older. That's not really my place to make that determination. But I do believe that I added the one small piece of saying, here is some forensic evidence to show that, in fact, the head of the Sphinx was recarved."
0: Yeah, and it's not a small detail. So I just want to backtrack a bit, Rob. Uh, you mentioned earlier at the start that it was thought at one point in time that it had been a male lion. Can you can you um elaborate on how we went through the process of thinking it was a male line and then realizing it wasn't and then how we ended up with the female form as being workable rather than the male version
1: That's a really good question Brendan um originally uh Robert Shaw uh was involved with the production of a film uh in the early 1990s called Mysteries of the Sphinx and Charlton Heston was the celebrity uh narrator of that and so forth In that movie, they showed, uh, in those days, they're saying, oh, well, it it used to be a lion. And so they showed a couple of diagrams of a lion, a male lion figure, uh, sort of superimposed over the Sphinx, if you will. And it was quite clear to me, even when I saw that as a kid, but um, particularly more as I got into it, that. The amount of stone above what currently exists right now would have been massively in excess of what was physically available to obtain a male lion's head with the great big giant mane on it and the big mane down the back and so forth. Really the vertical limitations of the Sphinx in the actual uh, strata that it lies in. Let me, let me put parentheses around that just for a second. The Sphinx, as I'm sure your readers or your listeners are aware, the Sphinx was not built. The Sphinx was carved into the bedrock in one piece mm-hmm. out of the existing multi-layered bedrock of the Mokattam formation, which flows at an angle down across the Giza Plateau. Uh, it actually flows from, it sort, of, it sort of first manifests up there at the base of the uh, Khufu's Pyramid. Um, In fact, you can actually see some of the layers of it in the boat pit and it flows down across and it flows through what actually would be the King's Chamber and Khafre's pyramid when you see that. And then those same geological layers flow on down through the Sphinx and on and on across to the south of the Sphinx. There are three principal layers, if you will, of the Mokatam Formation, and they've been identified as member one, member two, and member three. And they are alternating layers of hardness and softness. Member three being the hardest, these are all the result of eons and millions of years of, of sedimentation and laying down and as it was, a, it was a shoal and it was a coral reef and it was all this kind of stuff. Over the many millions of years as these layers were forming up. So these different layers that make up the Sphinx have different degrees of hardness. And they kind of alternate hard, soft, hard, soft, hard, soft as they go up. And they get increasingly harder as they go up towards the upper part of the um, where the head of the Sphinxes, is, if you will. OK, so that's the mokattam formation, if you will. And that's kind of key to a lot of the conversations about the Sphinx and the geology of the Sphinx and how it has eroded. And can any determinations of its age be derived from the geological erosional picture that we see today? Nonetheless, the upper layer of the Sphinx, where the head is, is a limited and defined thickness. Mm -hmm. And that's really what provided the upper ends of the limit of how much head could actually have been on top of the body of the sphinx. Okay. Geologically, it is pretty well agreed by all the people that have researched it over the years that the neck layer right about there is kind of the break between uh, Or member two would be the body. Member one and member two would be the body. And then the head above that is what is known as member three, if you will, which is a harder stone. Mm -hmm. But that is of limited thickness. There have been many, um, in addition to the lion figure with a giant mane, you talked about, you know, uh, Temple's, um, Robert Temple is all about the fact that it was a jackal, and and certainly that has its own number of following and so forth. That Clearly it was a jackal, it was carved into the Sphinx, and so forth. I disagree from two standpoints. One, the upper layer was nowhere near thick enough to allow for the vertical projection that a jackal's head would have provided, mm-hmm. A, and B, the long snout of a jackal that would be necessary in that image, if you will. As a sculptor, I'm here to tell you there's no way that that thing would have supported itself. Uh-huh. For, it wouldn't have lasted for 100 years, let alone many thousands of years, just because of the dynamics of stone and the, and the, and the brittleness of it. But back to the point that you were asking about, how did they determine that it couldn't be a lion? Really, it's the verticality of the layers of stone that of of what you have to deal with. Um, Ask me about GCF-1.
0: Why don't you tell us about GCF-1, Rob?
1: (laughs) Excellent question, Brandon. The GCF-1 has been kind of brought to the attention, certainly of the YouTube um, universe, if you will, recently uh it is south uh it's southeast of the uh, excuse me southwest of the actual great sphinx it is a formation that was identified by glenn dash who was a who was a uh geologist and cartographer that you know mapped much of the giza plateau and mark laner pointed it out and it's been talked about a lot some people called it oh gee that was the second sphinx you know, from a particular photo angle, you could look at it and say, well, it sort of looks like it might have been uh, shaped like it was going to be a Sphinx or something like that. Well, GCF-1 is actually an uncarved piece of the Giza Plateau, and that's really its importance to this conversation. GCF-1 is actually, um, um, archaeologically, is very important because it actually represents a uncut uh, strata of the Giza plateau in other words one that hasn't been sculpted or carved or made into a tomb or anything like that it's basically just like uh, looking at a, sl- a slice of the cake if you will uh, there are a lot of uh, people out there in the youtube world that have at least gone down the rabbit hole of thinking, oh this is the second sphinx and it was only partly done and so forth and so on that is all incorrect that that's only. it it, it only looks vaguely like it could have been that if it was shot from one particular angle. However, GCF one is literally a slice of the Giza plateau that lets you really look at the layers and they're all presented all in order and so forth. However, there is one significant difference. And we, we really worked hard in observation, reading all of the literature and the physical observation of, gcf-1 walking it all the way from khufu's pyramid where you first can start to see the layers down through Khafre's pyramid king chamber where you see them again down through the sphinx and down past them uh down past the sphinx at um to the southwest of it where ken tomb is and right next to that is this cut that is gcf-1 where you can clearly see all of the layers, all the way from bed number one, all the way up through the cap layer, which ostensibly is the stone that the head of the Sphinx is comprised of. I'm going to share a little photo of GCF one with you, uh, so that you can kind of get a sense of that. Um, it is was so amazing to walk upon and to walk around behind there and see. GCF-1 uh, in all of its um, grandeur, really, um, this would be me standing in front of GCF-1. And you can see a little bit over there to my left, there's sort of some of the little white numbers that show the different geological layers Mm -hmm. going all the way up to the very top, top layer up there above, which is... Um, ostensibly, and near as we can figure, that's the part that incorporates uh, the head of the Sphinx. Okay. Now, the thing that is of note is that the layers, even though they are all present, Brendan, they do not present at the same thickness. That's really the key takeaway of all of that. GCF-1, yes, is a good roadmap of what the uncut strata look like but the thickness of the individual layers vary considerably across the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. For instance, Bed 3i, or Bed 3, if you will, which is right about where my hand shows in that photo, Laner measured that to be 1.5 meters thick as it goes through the body of the Sphinx, okay? Right here at GCF1, it's barely three-quarters of a meter thick. So that really illustrates the fact that while all the layers are present, there are a lot of geological processes involved in compression and whether it's in syncline and all all of the kinds of things, and including the fact that the the Mokatam formation ducks underneath what is called the Madi formation, which is sort of right next door to where this is, just a little bit further to the south. As a as a you know a separate geological formation, short version of the story is yes the layers are present in GCF one, but no they do not present at the same thickness and therefore this can't be used as an actual yardstick to determine what did or did not happen as that as those formations go through the body of the Great Sphinx. Okay. So you know that's a that's a little bit about GCF one, but it's easy for. Um, You know, it's easy for clickbait to say, oh, geez, that's the second Sphinx and all those kinds of things. And, you know, we we all know that clickbait uh, serves its important role, I guess, in the monetized world of YouTube and so forth, but not necessarily in the advancement of the science. Just saying.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's all right. We don't want to overhype things too much. So the Great Sphinx,
1: I think one has to ask, how is it possible that the most colossal giant, stupendous statue on the planet from antiquity is absolutely without mention in the historical record for over a thousand years after its supposed creation, twelve hundred to be exact. I mean, how is that possible that there isn't all kinds of historical reference to the Sphinx and the creating of it and the making of it and all the work that went into quarrying it and quarrying the blocks out there and the carving of the king's head to celebrate and radiate his glory and grandeur, how is it possible that's without mention? That's one of the questions that we really tried to tackle in our work on the Great Sphinx. And I believe that the answer lies in the transformation of the head from the lioness, who was a venerated ancient goddess. She was the goddess of the protective goddess of the scribes and archivists and the keepers of the record, if you will. And, and in fact, Mahit was, she was the patron of the archivist and this title of the Heka Mahit was a title given to, it's one of the highest administrative titles given to various uh, um, um not royalty, but the, like the viziers and the master of the works and the master of the scribes, going at least all the way back to the first dynasty. And for instance, Hemi Ninhu, who was the chief vizier for Khufu and the master of works for Khufu, was also the master scribe for him. And it was on his statue that currently resides in the museum in Berlin where the dual title was first really identified by um, Dr. Manu day and wrote the paper with Robert Schock about the dual title, really indicating that Mahit was this lioness symbol with the bent rod coming out of her back and that the title, the dual title of the vizier and master of works and the master scribe and the master librarian and guardian of the... Archives of Mehit. This title was a was a hugely important title. It was last seen with Mary M E R E, who was Kafre's Grand Vizier, Master of Works, and his master scribe. And that's where this title, this Mahit title, uh, disappeared from the historical record coincidentally disappearing at the same time that possibly the lioness head disappeared Mm -hmm. and that may disappeared. Okay. Because in our opinion and from the research that we have done, what actually occurred was that there was a, this transformation when the King, be it Khafre, be it Dejedfre, his predecessor, or one of the Kings in that, in that little slot there, when they actually recarved the head into the likeness of a, of, uh, of a king, that was the first time that that image had really ever presented itself in the iconographic record. It had always been. I mean, there is a rich, rich history of the lioness and Mahit and the references to Mahit and Heka magic and all of the all of the nuances associated with that, going all the way back to the first dynasty. However those terminate with the advent of the Sphinx as we know it today with the human head. Everybody knows that the head is way too small for the body. Uh, I mean, that's troubled people forever and ever and ever. And, you know, I think that uh, one could argue, in fact, we believe and, and have researched quite extensively the notion that that's because the head was recarved that it is so much smaller. And And when that head was recarved, Mahit the lioness became she who is not mentioned. Mm -hmm. Because when that recarving happened, this ancient cult of Mahit, who was associated with the moon cult religion, with Thoth, all of a sudden the state ordained that that is no more. And from here forward, that is an image of kingship associated with Ra, the sun god, going forward, it really was not only an identity theft of her, but it was also a gender theft, because they basically took this ancient, venerated female goddess form, lopped off her head, if you will, replaced it or carved in its place the visage of a king with a divine royal braided beard. And going forward, that was an image of kingship, and of the sun god Ra religion. So this is an important moment that happened in the history of this symbol that had been venerated for hundreds if not thousands of years prior to all of a sudden the king comes along and says nope this is me and going forward this is the male god and Ra the sun god. So one of the things that really struck me in the context of all this, Brendan, is the addition of the divine braided royal beard Mm -hmm. that was affixed to the chin of the king when they carved this new face into that. And that's important because this was a, a, a profound symbol that goes all the way back to the beginning of writing and Egypt's record and that is that the divine curved braided beard was a symbol reserved exclusively for gods and ascended god kings. In mm-hmm. other words, gods and dead kings. Mm-hmm. And that living kings were always depicted with a shorter square beard uh-huh. that came down like so. And so all of a sudden, when you talk about symbol changes in addition to saying we're getting rid of this older religion and putting this new religion into place, this symbol change was not just a stylistic nuance. So give me a curved beard while you're doing that face, would you? It literally, Brendan, it was a theological seismic event mm-hmm. because never before in the record have we seen a living King depicted as a living God. Okay. That's really symbologically that's what was being said here with the addition of this curved divine braided royal beard and so um all of the priests all of the scribes all of the keepers of the record all of the people that were vested in the existing religious infrastructure if you will of the moon cult and of nahit and so forth they're out of there yeah or else they kept their head low and just smiled and nodded going forward, you know. And and again, I would, I'm reminded of the example of if let us say Mao Zedong in China had taken a ancient Chinese monument that was carved into a mountain that was an image of whatever it was a dragon, a lion, or whatever, and he carved. Mao Zedong's face into that monument that had been there for thousands of years. And so, going forward, okay, you've carved, now that is Mao Zedong, we get it. But nobody would ever mention what it had been before. You would never refer to, oh yeah, no, no, that's so-and-so, that was the ancient goddess of whatever... And because that that would be off with your head and off with the head of all of your family and everybody you know and so forth. And what we propose, Brendan, is that a similar change happened in Egypt with the carving of the pharaoh's face into this ancient venerated monument, the extinguishing of the moon cult religion that had been present and... Instituting a state-ordained change of direction of going forward, uh, it was profound.
0: I mean, it, yeah, it must have. You can imagine, you know, just the outrage. There must have been a, a huge amount of outrage at what what would have been seen as this whoever this king was, whoever it was, uh, basically deigning to divinize himself and say, "I am as well. I am equal stature with the gods. I am a god incarnate on earth." Um and, and goodbye to your you know your cute little moon cult. But uh yeah, I mean that was like you said, a seismic event.
1: Exactly. And um so we research that and we actually see that there is in fact reference to Mehit the Lioness going forward, and there is in fact a embedded Insinuated telling of this story that is present in the pyramid texts in the pyramid of Unas at Saqqara. Now, mind you, this happened 150 years after Khafre mm-hmm. is when Unas comes along, and and he, and 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 as an aside, I would note that you know everybody says, oh gee, none of the pyramids were tombs, and you know show me a pyramid that wasn't tomb. Well, or, well, the later ones, like in fifth dynasty and so forth. Many of them were in fact tombs, and they had very carefully identified, uh, you know, burial chambers and the burial shaft and the the sarcophagus chamber and a chamber and so forth, all of these things. And UNAS is certainly one of them, okay? Okay. His pyramid, bless his heart, is uh, is a basically a ruined pile of rubble these days. In fact, I'm going to show you just I'm going to share. So this is the pyramid of Unas, and you can just see that some of the rem- remnants of the casing. It actually is the smallest of the uh, of essentially the pyramid builder period. Um, still, you know, beautifully just tiny little bits of the casing stones remaining. But the interior core of it was basically just a pile of rubble. Mm -hmm. Well, 90 feet below this ruined pyramid, down through a chamber, uh, is the tomb of Unas. And in the tomb of Unas is where the pyramid texts reside. And I'm going to show you that because that is an extraordinary event. Okay. And the that is uh, looking, um, that's in the sarcophagus chamber of the uh, Tomb of Unas, and sort of where the pyramid texts began. There's 26,000 hieroglyphs that are perfectly inscribed into the fine limestone walls, and they're just in an amazing, I mean, really almost a um, undisturbed state of preservation down there in uh, in the pyramid texts, they were discovered in the uh, 1880s, um, and uh, have been interpreted uh, and and uh, and translated, you know, numerous times in numerous languages and so forth. But these pyramid texts tell uh, two stories. One is the official version of the pyramid texts is that they are instructions, protective spells and guidelines and they they basically equip train and protect the spirit of the king on his ascension into the afterlife and uh and that's fine and they do that they they go through both uh the antechamber and the uh and the sarcophagus chamber where this is but there is another story that is embedded in the telling of this mm-hmm. and I say embedded because it uses the Mechanism of Hekka, which is a ancient language of, uh, of inference and insinuation and wordplay and homophony and 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 using using sounds of words to actually create the words and actually being able to uh, insinuate and invoke something without actually naming it, and that's important because, as we know, just from what we previously talked about, that. Mehit and her moon cult became She Who Is Not Mentioned. And it was not really possible or probable to talk about what had been. But the story and the, the elocution, if you will, of the moon and the moon cult's role in the ascendance of the spirit of the king is embedded and woven throughout these pyramid texts from beginning to end. We were started down this path by a simple symbol that caught our attention uh, when we were in the pyramid text. This would have been in 2018, 2019. That symbol is a, a lone hieroglyph that is a defaced and deliberately disfigured rendition of Mehit the lioness with the bent rod poking out of her back. Okay. This is one, this symbol is one that had been uh actually named by um Robert Schock and um Manusaif Sade and Robert Bouval as the JAW sign, the jaw sign, uh, which is in honor of John Anthony West, who was one of the first to propose that the Sphinx is older and that it had originally been a lioness, okay? And so that's, what that, that's why that's called the jaw sign. But this symbol appears in the exact center of the wall of the sarcophagus chamber, right at eye level, is this symbol. And, and so we looked at this and said, well, so first of all, this symbol has been out of use now for 150 years by the time the tomb of Unas was constructed. Mm-hmm. Why is this out-of-date symbol in such a prominent displayed place in the Sargophagus chamber of uh, King Unas. Why is it made, is it is it an error, or was it made to look like an error, or what? And so this is kind of what led us on the search to say, well, are there other clues, are there other parts of a message that might be ambiguously presented throughout the pyramid text that may be telling a story that they couldn't tell out loud. So that's kind of what started us on this journey of researching the pyramid text. And Manu and I published a paper last, uh, last summer on the, the, this woven tale that goes through the pyramid text that tells the story of Mahit the lioness, her recarving, her presence there on the Giza Plateau at the, at the time of Zeptepi, the first time, and uh, it's really quite extraordinary because of the, the things that we uncovered, um, and I'm happy to go into detail with you on that, but yeah, yeah. Pr- particularly we discovered that there is a camouflage subtext that runs through. Um, and that this subtext actually contains kind of a lament and a protest by the scribal class, if you will, to this state ordained change of religion and the um, basically the expungement of this ancient venerated goddess from the historical record. Mm. Uh, the other thing, uh, well, the beard, of course, being one of the things that really triggered this protest uh, because it was such a sacrilege, as you pointed out, to say, hey, I'm God now, I'm God today, right here in living life, not after I ascend to the heavens. Um, but the other thing that I think really came clear to us in this examination is that what we would call textual topography, meaning that the location, the very specific location of, of textual elements is itself a very, uh, is, is an informative, useful tool of expressing intent on the part of the composer. Of the pyramid text. Well, more to the point is that uh, <laughs> where the where these things are in relation to each other matters yes. a lot. Position matters, okay? Completely. Because we went on to find that the actual um, tomb of Unas, particularly the antechamber, is actually a simulation of the Great Sphinx at Giza, over okay. thirty kilometers away or whatever. And this is demonstrated throughout the antechamber where the actual placement of specific references to body parts or to the face or to the names that appear on the side, the Hormakit and Horakiti, Hormaket and Horakti, uh, as names that appear in, inscribed into the, into the side of the pyramid text in the, in the antechamber there. Um, all of these things point to the fact that they were the composer of these texts was deliberately telling a story that was just underneath the surface of the official purpose of the pyramid Mm texts.
0: Very profound. You said it's a simulation of the Sphinx. So can you flesh that out for us? Because that's obviously the fact that they're pointing back to the Sphinx is a very powerful statement in itself.
1: Let's take a look. I'm going to, I'm going to stick up a uh, photo of, the actual, or an actual diagram of the tomb of Unas. And I I will just sort of run you real quickly through the, um, what I would say is the, some, and this is by no means all of them, but sort of the trail of clues, if you will. So that's the actual tomb of Unas that you can see oriented to the cardinal positions and Sargophagus chambers on the left. Antechambers on the right, and you see the little vertical shot of the Sphinx down below there. That's kind of where the actual um, uh, simulation of the Sphinx actually is. Because remember, part of the description that becomes apparent here is that the spirit of the king actually travels through the Sphinx on his way to ascending to the afterlife. And that, that is one of the functions that the Sphinx has provided uh, even when it was uh, Mahit the lioness as kind of the um, the resurrection machine, I guess you would say, and remember when we're talking resurrection, Brendan, it doesn't just happen once; mm-hmm. it happens over and over and over and over again to eternity, this whole process of the offerings and the you know and the separating the ba and the ka and then the passing through the sphinx on his way through to um on his way to the sky and to the eternal afterlife, but it doesn't just happen once it happens over and over again. So on the, um, where you see number two there, that's where the lioness, um, uh, hieroglyph was the jaw sign. Uh, yeah. at number three there, you start to see where we're, we're seeing some of the uh, simulation aspects of the Sphinx. There's a lot more that are just included here, but for instance, where number three points at, That's right where on that south wall is where the reference is to the tail, for instance. Uh, And it is co-joined with uh, a reference to where you see the other arrow of three. There is, uh, it's conjoined with uh, a reference to Heka magic, which Heka was the language of invocation and the language of creation that the king had to learn and become fluent in this because that was part of his um being equipped for his journey to the afterlife, if you will mm-hmm. so number four is right where you turn the corner there that 's where um, acre, which is the two headed lioness symbol that one sees, and i 'll show you a photo of that in, in a moment, but he 's sort of the guardian of the netherworld and the and the um and the land of uh, and the land of the living, if you will he's the guardian between the two, and that 's sort of where the connecting passage sort of you know, connects where the spirit of the king is going to go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Number five is where there are two references to Hormaket and Horakti. One of them is, the first one is, um, is hinted at. Uh, there are number five, that would be the um, left-hand side one there on the wall. And the other one is, um, is actually literally spelled out as the, the um, Harakti being the spirit in the sky they are connected right at eye level with the horizon line and they are referenced uh, to each other right there where the sky version of it is there are a collection of three different uh, lioness heads that are engraved in and around that symbol if you will or that, that name that you see one of which is a unique symbol that actually is a lioness head That has a cobra Uraeus on top of it. Okay, that's a unique symbol that we don't see anywhere else. And again, it is a veiled reference to the cobra royal, the royal cobra uh, Uraeus, as a symbol that is being applied to the lioness head as a reminder that that's where and what she was. Number six. is where there is reference to, up up on that wall where number six is, there is reference to the evil deed that has been done. Number seven is right smack in the middle of that um, wall of 36 columns of text. Right in the middle column, and column number 18, is where the reference to dawn is. That would be right where the face of the Sphinx is that faces Dewey's to greet the dawn on the spring equinox, okay? Mm -hmm. And again, a veiled reference to um, the fact that this is the Sphinx that the king spirit is traveling through. Number eight is where it is talked about the location. The location is, uh, is referred to as Rostau, which of course is ancient Giza that in the location of Rostow is the cavern of creation, the primordial creation, okay? And that location textually in the northeast corner of the antechamber is precisely where you would expect to see, for instance, the ancient cavern of creation, i.e. the Hall of Records that Edgar Casey points out, underneath the left paw of the Sphinx Mm -hmm. directly there. So it is in that cavern that um, that the king's spirit receives the eye of Horus after he has gone through all the trials and tribulations and passed all the tests that he has to do. He receives the eye of Horus and he ascends through the passageway to the north. And that is where the pyramid texts terminate is going uh, in in through that passage to the north at at number nine. And interestingly enough, what happens at number nine is that the spirit of the king swallows the Uraeus, i.e. the snake-like figure, and he becomes Bobby the full moon. Let me just repeat that (laughs) again. He He basically swallows, having done all of his deeds, he swallows the Uraeus, which is the sign of kingship, if you will, and he becomes the full moon. This is extraordinary in that it actually indicates that it has been the moon that has been being talked about in the pyramid texts as the vehicle, as the ferry, if you will, ferrying the king's spirit into the sky and not the sun. This whole thing actually in comprises a a very uh it's a subterfugious message because this was entirely contrary to the official narrative and the official purposes of the pyramid text of uh, being uh a launch manual, if you will, to the sun via the sun god Ra. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting. We did we did determine um as part of our research, we identified who the composer was because this is the first time that the ancient rituals and spells and spirits and all of that had actually been committed to stone in the pyramid text. It is the oldest religious writings from ancient Egypt. Okay, So it's not, it's not like somebody just scribbled it down and said, hey, carve this on the wall. Yeah, somebody who was able to be in charge of composing this message had a very—they uh, were very highly placed, very important, and had to have the authority and the knowledge of the of the enigmatic language, if you will, to actually be able to compose these pyramid texts and to embed this message in there. We identified uh, the person is. Ihi, I-H-Y. Uh, he was Unas's grand vizier and his master of works and the chamberlain to the king. And he was basically the big guy that got everything done. And he was the master scribe that actually composed and directed the inscribing of the pyramid text into the tomb of Unas. And we might add, was also the one responsible for this subterfugious message, mm-hmm. if you will, that was embedded in the pyramid text. Well, we actually have referred to this as kind of a message in a bottle. Because yes, on one hand, the job was to get the spirit of the king out and up into the sky the way he was supposed to. But the the other job was to preserve the history of the abandonment, the expungement of the ancient lioness goddess, and to preserve and to memorialize her history for what would no doubt be future readers. We say that for a couple of reasons. One is because of the obvious clues that he drops along the way. But it is interesting to note that when the tomb of Unas was discovered, it was missing the three giant portcullis stones that are almost universally present in every tomb to seal the tomb so that tomb robbers couldn't be in couldn't get in there or whatever. there was no evidence that they had ever been present and It is not entirely clear that the tomb was ever actually sealed, hmm. and this leads us to uh the partial conclusion that it was kind of the intent of the vizier, Ihi, master of doing the pyramid texts themselves, that uh, that these would be viewed by future generations and would be viewed, viewed by posterity. As a final little historical note on that, uh, Ihi, his temple, or not his temple, but his tomb, is not far from um, the tomb of Unas, the pyramid of Unas there at Saqqara. And so, of course, as a a Grand Vizier, and he had his own tomb and all that good stuff. um, It is quite extraordinary that Ihi was actually yanked out of his tomb, his body cast out, and his tomb was taken over by Unas's daughter, Mm. who now resides in what had previously been Ihi's tomb. So... It is a most extraordinary example of a contemporary um, uh, replacement or um, a reappropriation of a tomb. It's extraordinary that that would have happened. But it's not so extraordinary if his message got found out and that somebody realized that he had actually written this graffiti on the wall of of these official religious proceedings and whatnot, even after his death, that he was booted from his tomb and it was taken over by the king's daughter mm-hmm. so that's sort of the tale uh in, in a little bit of a nutshell of the story that we found being told of the great sphinx and it's pre um uh, it's it's life before as may the lioness
0: right yeah that's a very interesting story <laughs> um was there anything so we
1: we published that paper uh, last year last summer like i said and that is uh, entitled the bearded lady of giza okay. um entitled such because actually the king did beard the lady he bearded the lady lioness and and pressed forward with his own face but uh that also was published in archaeological uh discovery journal
0: beautiful uh, i encourage everyone to go and check that out if they're interested in the the
1: details they are details for sure. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, where so, does that take
1: us? Well, so that's all well and good uh, because, yes, we, we believe that the Sphinx is older. There's a lot of evidence to show that, uh, that it had been uh, something else before it was carved. And um, all of this gets to the concept of, so if it was older than what we're told, so what i mean where where does that go what what does that actually mean if this thing was older well obviously that's not in concert with the official uh egyptological narrative let us say and there's been a struggle between the alternative history world and the egyptological egyptological world for quite some time and it's and it's quite heated and quite um uh emotionally charged if you will but by and large, this whole conversation kind of comes down to: is all of the things that we see in Egypt are they original, or are they legacy? Mm-hmm. That's really what this whole heated conversation comes down to. And you know, and certainly uh, the likes of Zahi and whatnot are are vehement proponents of the fact that everything that you see across the Egyptian landscape is original to the Egyptian culture and not a legacy or something that somebody else gave them or or that they inherited. Mm-hmm. I think that there is some debate to that. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons that I believe that Egypt is uh, important to this conversation is because that's probably one of the best set of footprints going backwards in time that we really have to deal with in terms of archaeology and, and uh, iconography and the symbolism of how people made records of how they got to where they are and how they went forward and how they felt the whole universe was all put together. In my mind, the importance of the Sphinx being older is that is because it gives a set of footprints that leads backwards in time and not forwards in time the way that we've been historically told.
0: Right. So it kind of opens up that discussion of, well, if it's a legacy, then what was there before? What what was this other culture or civilization that imparted or left this behind, or this the technology or the know-how, these techniques, whatever it is that <laughs> they have left behind?
1: Who was it? Exactly. This? Exactly. And and I think that um, the answer is probably some of both. Mm. It's, you know, there is uh, certainly a long history in Egypt of reappropriation of existing monuments and putting your name and your cartouche on them and maybe adding on to building onto them and going forward. There is also a lot of research that indicates that uh, many of the oldest monuments in Egypt are built on top of older, more uh, primordial mounds, if you will, or, or older spots that had already been Um, adopted and identified as being um, sacred spots, Mm -hmm. power spots, if you will. And so I guess I'm inclined to agree with the notion that it is part and part. There's certainly part of some things, maybe uh, knowledge systems, for instance, that were inherited. So you asked the question, what does that lead us to? I think it's important that we know that there are some footprints if we know how to look for them and validate the question of what about that? Are there footprints that lead backwards? Are there indications of some prior cycle of civilization that we can point to without diminishing in any way the incredible monumental accomplishments of the Egyptians? Okay, And I I really want to underscore that. It's not like I, I, I fear that sometimes part of that conversation is fueled by, oh gee, if it is somebody else other than us, then that means that it's it's taking it from us. It's yep. it's stealing our heritage and so forth. And and I think it is actually augmenting the heritage of um of the ancient Egyptian traditions to note that they may have actually gotten some knowledge systems if nothing else from somewhere else i mean all cultures are like that around the world right yeah exactly
0: yeah it's not a it's not a diminishment of someone's culture or history to acknowledge that there are connections and exchanges of information and that we've learned from our predecessors or what have you at all
1: absolutely um of course we know that um edgar casey the famous prophet the sleeping prophet uh, one of his, uh, not one, but actually a series of his many, many um, predictions and visions that he had, and then particularly in the 1930s, I guess, was that the um, that there is a chamber underneath the paw of the Great Sphinx. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on to say that he felt that it was probably the Hall of Records that it contained all kinds of information about a previous civilization that had flourished and then perished in a great cataclysm that involved the Great Flood and that sort of thing. Um, Michael Laflemme in his great book Visions of Atlantis um, dives into that pretty deeply in addition to the what I think is an, a, an excellent assemblage of many, many different historical threads that he weaves together uh, in uh, in the service of a notion that there may have been this prior civilization, which, for the purposes of conversation, we'll use the "A" word, uh, and say that it was Atlantis. Okay, recognizing that that very word itself is very emotionally charged and fraught, and and gets you thrown out of any of the gentlemen's clubs of uh, <laughs> of Egyptologists or archaeologists or anybody that is a serious-minded person. That being said, um, so this chamber that is under the paw of the Great Sphinx. That's one of the things that Manu and I are hard on the Manu safe today. We are hard on the trail of seeking to identify and to provide some unambiguous evidence that this chamber may exist in the hopes that if enough probable causes is demonstrated, that perhaps another drill, another drilling in the right spot may be in order to demonstrate physically the presence of this chamber. Um, So to that end, I commend your listeners' attention to a very important paper that was written last year by two Italian researchers, Bionde and Malanga. And they did a satellite scan of the Giza Plateau and specifically of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And this satellite scan uh, indicated a number of uh, undiscovered chambers, voids, openings, etc. that may yet exist inside the Great Pyramid. Um, The satellite scan is a technology that really hasn't been utilized uh, really to date so much in archaeology. Obviously, in the extraction industries, they've been doing it for a long, long time and searching for oil and other, you know, natural resources and things of that sort. But the principle of basically the principle of this satellite scan is that they were able to um, utilize the satellite scan to detect the micro motion, micro motion of the jiggle, if you will, of the Giza Plateau. Imagine, if you will, that the Giza Plateau, we talked about the Mokatam Formation, and it's the basically these, you know, these giant sheets of, of limestone, if you will, upon which the immensely fantastically heavy pyramids are sitting on top of this. And immediately down below, down below um, um to the east of there is the city of Cairo. 25 million people laughing, jumping up and down, cars boxes clumping up and down, all the commotion that goes along with a city of twenty-five million people that generates a considerable vibrational signature. Mm-hmm. All right. And imagine if you will that the Giza Plateau, this giant stone formation, I kind of I kind of visualize it almost like the metal soundboard that is in a Steinway grand piano. Okay, that is Actually, a resonant, a, a vibratory resonator, if you will, of all of this commotion and vibration that is going on down below there in Egypt. So, this provides a, a vibrational environment that allows the satellite going over to scan this because the stone is going to jiggle or micro vibrate, if you will, differently than the voids. Mm-hmm. Okay, And if you have the sufficiently um, uh, discrete and delicate instrumentation and have the math and can do the Fourier transformations and so forth of all of those pixel analysis and so forth, you come up with the ability to detect the jiggle, if you will, of the solid part versus the voids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so... Well, this paper was published last fall, um, August, September, October, um, and is a wonderful paper. They used the European uh, satellite to do this scan with, and provided a very rich data stream for them. You know, there's pages of all the math that were included in that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to presume to to convey all of that at this point. But the point being that they did reveal a number of cavities, voids, passages, etc. inside the existing Great Pyramid, in addition to the ones that are known. Sure. And I mention this because everyone, I'm sure, of your audience is very familiar with the grand hoopla that occurred this spring as Zahi uh, stood in front of the pyramid, in front of the assembled press of the world, and 25 microphones in front of them and whatnot, and announced that they had discovered a new passageway right above the north entrance to the pyramid, right? right? And they had put a little endoscopic camera in there, and here's the pictures of it, and you've seen it all over the internet. And it was a grand and tremendous discovery, okay? As a side note, we would say that it's likely that um, any discovery that happens in Egyptology has got to have Zahi's uh, yeah. face and hat Attached yep. to it, okay? I mean, <laughs> he's not, he's not in any... a denim shirt, the, the, that, that's an essential part of any advancement in the field of Egyptology. Not that he's after any attention. Correct. So <laughs> the interesting thing about that is this passageway that they were all up in arms about that they had just recently discovered and so forth, that passageway was clearly shown on Biondi and Malanga's data set that mm-hmm. they had published months before that. That's mm-hmm. really the takeaway that I wanted to make here about that. Okay, okay. Yeah. there there already have been some good, solid, positive controls demonstrated that this method of of non invasive remote sensing um, analysis is a valid way of determining standing stone versus voids. Uh-huh. The reason I say all that is because Dr. Safe today and myself, we've teamed up with a, um, a gentleman who is a lifetime geophysicist and is one of the world-leading experts on remote satellite sensing technology for determining those kinds of things under the ground, if you will. And we are hard at work to see if we can replicate Beyond and Malanga's work using a different satellite, because we don't have access to the European Space Agency's satellite, using the Capella satellite, and to actually apply the same math and the same Fourier transformations and the same analysis of the signals, if you will, to do a satellite scan of the Great Sphinx. Because we are going to do our darndest to see if we can actually provide unambiguous evidence of this uh, anomaly A that you will uh, underneath the paw of the Great Sphinx. Mm-hmm. An anomaly by the way I might, I must add that was identified by Robert Schock and Thomas Dobecky um, years and years ago in the 1990s when they did their seismic refraction study identified the likely uh, presence of anomaly A underneath the left paw of the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. We need to see if we can use the modern non-invasive method of obtaining the same data to cross-reference that again to basically building a case of probable cause for drilling again to find mm-hmm. that there is such a space as has been predicted by Edgar Casey amongst many other things that he has done. Mm-hmm. Now we're not going to go in there and find, uh, you know, flying cars and all kinds of descriptions about the wonderments of Atlantis and so forth and so on. And in fact, it's quite likely that that cavern was breached in ancient times and the contents of it were likely removed in a portable archive that went off to Memphis. It's probably in a couple of other places right now. So it's not likely that they're going to say, oh, we drilled down in there and here's all this stuff like was in King Tut's tomb, right? you know, chariots and, you know, golden chairs and stuff like that. That's not likely to be the case, but the fact that if it is there, that's the important thing. If it's actually there and it is a uh, man-made space down there, that's going to be a big deal to empirically be able to demonstrate that kind of thing and lend credence to many of these other tales that come from all these different disciplines that there was something earlier that happened before. Is
0: that, to you, is that the primary sort of significance of it? If, the, if there is a cavity, you know, a man-made cavity under the pore of the sphinx, then it opens up, you know, the the potential for, you know, the casing material around Atlantis. Absolutely. Something, it's maybe there's something to this, and this this helps us to, you know, overcome what, you know, Han- Hancock has been calling for years, our collective amnesia around who, who we are, where we come from.
1: Right. I, I, I would say that uh, that's exactly correct. You know, the this original or legacy debate that, is, that, that has really been the logjam essentially between alternative and um, established paradigm, if you will, um, it's eroding. That, that paradigm is showing cracks as increasing research indicates more and more that uh, if nothing else, we have vastly underrated how old stuff is. And we have vastly underrated the capabilities of ancient peoples, based on what we think uh, they should have been able to do at the time when they did it. Obviously, Göbekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe are all are all certainly principal examples of that. Um, but also, you know, it, uh, South and Central America is full of clear expressions of highly developed culture that we have to presume that they um, um, indigenously arrived at their abilities to do these things. They weren't gifted by UFOs. Okay. And they weren't done by UFOs. I'm sorry. But I think that, um, I think that ancient peoples have a lot of uh, knowledge and skill sets that either devolved or failed to be passed along. And that's, I think probably one of the things that we see so incredibly often is mm-hmm. uh, the difficulty in passing knowledge forward and and the frailty and fragility of knowledge sets.
0: That's that's a good point. And um, I want to just... I'm just looking up a name here because um, I, this is... A, you're talking about something I covered in a, an episode with um, Patrick... I'm just going to look for his last name. Patrick Nunn, who... I don't know if you know of him, but he's done some excellent research into these indigenous cultures. Who, uh, and it's Patrick and N U N, none.
1: I'm going to write that down. <clears throat>
0: um, And so he's done this fantastic work with co- various cultures about, around their oral traditions and how they have faithfully retained accurate information about. What life was like as far back as 13,000 years ago, and just through oral transmission, so with really high fidelity, and they were able to match these accounts up with, you know, the different, the very levels, uh, the sea levels. Um, you know, this myth comes back to this time. You know, where the level was down here. You know, 100 meters lower or what have you. They actually managed to, with a high degree of certainty or probability to identify the accuracy of these versions of events and that they're not just simple myths that were plucked out of the air, but they're actually recounting times when there were these huge catastrophic cataclysmic events, deluges, floods, you know, on a scale which we can't even get, get our heads around at the moment.
1: Absolutely. And and in fact, I think that's one of the things that I believe Graham has um, really put his finger on quite well, and that is that myth is probably one of the most important um, pieces of baggage that actually lets you transmit knowledge forward, uh, and especially in pre-literate environments. I mean, because a lot of stuff happened before people actually started putting it down in writing, and and presumably in a manner that we would be able to um, to reconstruct and and to read at some point in the future. Much of the Egyptian writing, I mean, between, you know, archaic Egyptian uh, hieroglyphic and Middle Kingdom and New Kingdom and Old Kingdom and all that, there's uh, only a little bit of transliteration that goes between those. And it's been very difficult for people to do accurate translations of, you know, some of the enigmatic writings that we see, for instance, in, well, we see them particularly in, like, the Temple of Edfu and the Temple of Esna. And um, while you're talking about transmitting stories forward and recording the fact of stories and whatnot, um, I was at Contact in the Desert beginning of June and had the fortune to see Graham Hancock speak. And, and it was very, very interesting to see, particularly um, uh, his presentation along with the panel uh, essentially, the Forbidden Archaeology panel that was there, and Dr. Safceday was part of that panel, and Andrew Collins was, and you know, and and so forth, and.
0: This concludes part one of the show. You'll find part two and related materials in my members-only portal, The Truthiversity, the consciousness-raising university. This creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, videos, blogs, courses, audio files, live internal events, the whole enchilada. Grab yourself a free 24-hour pass at access.truthiversity.com.